folks who are facing immigration consequences like deportation, many times that is the most important consequence, an important factor for them when facing a, a criminal charge. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and in this episode, we're going to continue to broaden our look at the criminal legal system to include the systems that intersect with the criminal system. You may recall the episode we did early on with Emma Ketteringham of the Bronx Defenders about child protective services and how criminal charges might trigger their involvement. And today we're going to do something similar, but with crimmigration which is the intersection of the criminal and immigration systems, if that's not obvious from the name. There's no better guide to the incredibly complex interplay between these two systems than Phil Torrey of Harvard's Immigration and Refugee Clinical Program. He may have been one of the busiest men in America this past year, but we're excited he took time to sit down with us. Let's say a defense attorney calls you and says, I have this client, they're not a citizen or their status is in question. Mm-hmm. What do you do next? What are you thinking about? What kind of questions do you need answered? And, and what is at stake? So there are really three different factors that come into play in any case where a non-citizen is facing a criminal charge. Um, so I would initially ask that public defender uh, or criminal defense uh, attorney to gather three pieces of information. So one would be um, that person's criminal history, uh, which would include any arrest, and it would include any criminal disposition in their past, even if that disposition did not result in a conviction for state law purposes. Second, I would uh, I would need to know their current immigration status, which can be uh, an incredibly complex question in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So there are a range of different immigration statuses, everything from somebody who's here without any documentation at all, um, all the way through a visa holder or somebody on DACA or temporary protected status um, or potentially a um, lawful permanent resident. So basically anything other than somebody who's been a naturalized citizen. So that's the second piece of information I would need. And then the third piece of information I would need uh, would be the language of the state or federal statute that they've been accused of violating. Um, Once I have those three pieces of information, and inevitably it's difficult to gather the complete field in each of those particular areas, but once I generally have those three pieces of information, I could provide you with advice about the potential immigration consequences that your client might face. And what are some of those potential immigration consequences? Um, there's, there's a range of different consequences. So naturally, sort of the most obvious one would be deportation. Um, but it could also include detention, including mandatory detention in which the individual would have no right to seek release from detention on bail or bond. And when you say detention, that is essentially how different, is that different from going to prison? Um, legally, it's different, but in reality, it's virtually the exact same thing. Um, and the reason is immigration detention centers are, in large part, either private facilities, um, which are housing criminal detainees as well, um, or they're facilities in which uh, the federal government has contracted bed space from 
county uh, prisons or houses of correction or jails. So they're virtually the exact same thing. So detention is another big consequence that folks are, are concerned about. There's also um, the potential for creating a bar to a more protective form of immigration relief. So for example, if somebody's here on a visa and they're facing a certain kind of criminal charge, they want to know if they're not going to get deported then, if down the road, if they want to get a green card, if they're going to be barred from receiving that green card. So that's another consequence. And then I would say the last one that's usually most, uh, one of the sort of the main ones that, that folks are more concerned with is international travel. So if you're uh, convicted of an offense here in the United States, even if it doesn't make you deportable in that moment, sometimes if you leave the country and then try to get back in, when you're stopped at the border, that prior charge can result in your um, inadmissibility at the border. Okay. And um, the idea that you would need to know, it makes sense to me that you would need to know someone's, someone's status and their criminal history. How does the language of this specific statute fit into all of this? And maybe can you give an example of how these three things might interact to lead yeah. to one of those outcomes? Sure. So it's really critical to know the exact statute that the person has been accused of violating because the analysis um, that I would do or the students in, in my clinic would do is they would compare the statutory language, the elements of that criminal offense with the generic um, ground of removal or ground that would trigger detention in the immigration statute. Mm -hmm. And that analysis is a, is a strict legal analysis in which you're parsing both statutes and determining whether there's an exact match between those two statutes. So the immigration statute doesn't say uh, the following consequences happen for people charged with the following crimes. Right. Um, because it's a federal statute and these are all state, the criminal laws are all state level. Exactly. So basically, it would be impossible for Congress to say, here are a list of right. every state offense in every jurisdiction in the United States in which these consequences, uh, in terms of immigration consequences, would attach. Okay. So what happens is Congress sort of um, pulls fields or, or groups of criminal statutes into, uh, into categories that are specifically mentioned in the immigration statute. So one category would be aggravated felonies. Another category, category would be crimes involving moral turpitude. And what does moral turpitude mean? It's, it seems like a View, term of art. That's a great question. If you figure that out, let me know. Because <laughs> it, is, it is incredibly nebulous and vague and often unworkable definition. Um, and it's, it's incredibly subjective and, it can, and therefore it can change depending on who the adjudicator is and trying to determine whether a criminal, a state criminal offense is a, quote, crime involving moral turpitude. What's a range of crimes that might fall under uh, the category of crimes of moral turpitude? It could be anything from first-degree murder um, all the way down to uh, petty theft or, um, you know, jumping a turnstile at a subway station, any, in a, any offense in between. Okay. So crimes of violence often. Pretty much the whole. The, the whole gambit. gambit. Theft offenses, fraud offenses. Um, it's a lot of different offenses that have been sort of shoehorned into that definition. So then, is it? I mean, it's if the if the range is is that large, then the implication is that sort of any interaction with the criminal 
justice system could be a deportable offense or interaction or could lead to certain immigration consequences. Any interact, I mean, that's, that's essentially correct. Okay. Um, the crime involving moral turpitude ground of removal itself um, is specific to certain circumstances depending on the person's immigration status. Okay. So that's partly why you need that immigration status piece in the beginning. So that's how the three of them interact. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So what's an example of, of, of that, uh, of someone you've worked with in the last year, and obviously you don't have to give specifics. I actually just worked on a case um, in which I got a decision last week, um, and we unfortunately lost the case, but we're continuing to pursue other options. Um, but just in terms of you know focusing on this immigration context, because we also do you know asylum-related cases and things like that. So this was a case of an individual um, who was convicted of a statute in Minnesota, and the statute he was a lawful permanent resident. He had come here. Uh, as a refugee and got his green card and was convicted under a statute in Minnesota that uh, punishes a wide range of conduct. Um, the statute itself is often referred to as the making terrorist threats statute, which sounds really awful, um, but it punishes anything from you know, sort of making a flippant remark in which somebody may consider to be threatening all the way up to, you know, calling it a bomb threat at a school. Right. So it's a full range of, of, of difference from underlying conduct that could be punished under the statute. And part of what we were arguing in this case was that um, the language of the statute, sort of going back to what you were talking about before, the language of the statute did not match the definition of what courts um, have considered to be a crime involving moral turpitude because it punishes this full range of conduct. Um, and unfortunately, the Board of Immigration Appeals, where we had this case filed, didn't agree with us, um, but we're looking into taking it up at the, at the circuit level. Um, but the underlying conduct in that case was uh, relatively minor. It was, uh, it was an argument that the client was having with, um, with a partner and he made a threat, um, but there wasn't any physical harm at all. Um, and if I'm remembering correct, correct, correctly, a neighbor called the police and the police showed up and charged him under the statute. Either from TV or because most of the people who listen to this podcast care about or work in criminal justice, we're pretty familiar with the way the criminal legal system works. Um, but the immigration system is uh, a world in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, what, what would you describe, or what would you say are the major differences between the immigration system and the criminal system? Oof, there are a lot of differences. Um, first and foremost, it is technically, legally a civil system and not a criminal system. Uh, there have been a number of cases in which Courts have said that the consequences, the immigration consequences of a criminal offense um, is not technically punishment, and so therefore it doesn't fall within the criminal realm. And so in immigration proceedings, you do not receive the full range of constitutional protections like you would in a criminal setting. So for example, you are not appointed counsel. Uh, you, you don't have a right to appointed counsel. You do have a right to an attorney, but not one appointed to you. Um, and there are a host of other 
um, evidentiary issues and constitutional protections and whatnot that are not afforded in the, in the immigration context. Um, currently, most individuals who are facing removal from the United States um, have to go through a process in which they can um, assert any defenses or claims that they have in front of an immigration judge uh, who is technically an attorney in the Department of Justice. And the proceedings are adversarial in nature and in many ways mirror what a criminal court proceeding would look like, again, without a lot of the protections that you would see in criminal proceedings. Um, but those cases can take years and years to adjudicate. Um, there's a huge backlog of several hundred thousand cases in the immigration system. And so, you know, for example, here in Boston, I was recently at a hearing in which judges are scheduling hearings or trials on immigration relief in, like, 2021. Wow. And in the interim, people could, could be detained, but they could also be sort of going about their life? They could be, that's correct, they could be um, detained or out of detention. They could be on um, what, what are referred to as alternatives to detention, uh, such as ankle monitoring uh, devices or required ICE check-ins. Uh, typically, the folks who are in detention, their cases will move a little bit faster, um, but they could still be detained for years. This is a basic question. Assuming someone is not detained, is the backlog ever a good thing because it sort of puts off the possibility of being you know, removed from your community? Um, you hear that sometimes, and I think, you know, in my experience, the clients that I've worked with and representative, it's not really a good thing because um, you're constantly living in this sort of limbo state um, and you're not able to... Um, typically anyway, not able to travel abroad if you're trying to get out of the country to see family members. Um, you're not able to adjust your status or, or regularize your status or help a family member gain status. Um, and it just constantly sort of hangs over your head for years. Yeah, psychologically. It's psychologically, exactly, there's a massive impact. It's sort of similar to saying, you know, well, why not put off why, why wouldn't court delays be a, a good thing in the criminal system? Because you're putting off the possibility of punishment yeah. at the end of it. Right. Um, right. Yeah, people want their day in court. They want to be heard. And it, the cases that we take, they're all really solid, strong claims in which we want to get in there to have them heard. This is obviously, well, it's now 2018, but 2017 was a very busy year for you and yes. your clinics. And, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what the last year was like and what you were working on. Yeah, the last year felt in many ways like 20 years packed into <laughs> into one, um, and in other ways felt like a week. Yeah. Um, I was actually shocked when you agreed to do this interview because, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of for the last year, it was like, no, don't, don't get in touch with Phil Torrey because he's got way too much to do. No, no, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, more than happy to do it, and it's... You know, I mean, one of the most amazing pieces of last year, I'll start with sort of a more positive note because there are so many negative notes when it comes to last year. One of the more positive notes, which is the incredible outpouring of support um, that folks in the community showed uh, toward our clients um, and toward us as we are sort of working in this this new legal landscape. Folks here at, at HLS and students and faculty members and 
We had people coming by all hours of the day and night, dropping off you know cookies and making dinner for us and stuff. It was it was it was amazing. One of the major areas in which we we did quite a bit of work was on the Muslim ban. Um, so we worked with organizations. Um, you know, we went to the airports, brought students with us, um, but then we worked with organizations like the ACLU and IRAP and other folks who were uh, sort of leading the charge in that litigation and developing some of the legal arguments in those cases and filing amicus briefs with those legal arguments. Prior to last year, we would, in the clinic file, you know, maybe two amicus briefs a year. Last year, I think we filed something like nine to a dozen amicus briefs. Wow. Um, and many were in the Muslim ban um, context. I've also been doing a lot of work on a particular crime bar to asylum called the Particularly Serious Crime Bar. Um, what does that mean? So Particularly Serious Crime is a, is a, is a legal term, and it basically, uh, the statute says, if you've been convicted of a final judgment of a, quote, particularly serious crime such that you're a danger to the community, uh, you're ineligible for asylum. Um, and that language is taken out of uh, the Refugee Convention and this 1967 protocol, of which we're a party to, the United States is a party to. So it, it pulls in our international obligations to refugees. The problem is domestic law interprets this particular serious crime bar much differently than the international community does. So the international community interprets this bar very narrowly and requires the offense that would prevent somebody from seeking refuge in the United States, uh, requires a defense to be like a capital offense, murder or something to that degree. For the public defender's offices out there or criminal defense attorneys who don't have the resources to do a fully holistic model or to have immigration attorneys on staff, you know, how are they supposed to navigate this? Because they, I, I believe they have an, an obligation to advise their clients yeah. per the Supreme Court's um, mm -hmm. orders to about the, the immigration consequences of their charges. So do you have thoughts on where the right place to start is or what resources someone might look at? It's a great question because you're right. I mean, you're you're working with dealing with public defenders, criminal defense attorneys who are already incredibly overworked, overburdened, um, who now, based on this Padilla decision in 2010, are required to provide immigration advice to their non-citizen clients, um, and it's an incredible amount of work. Many public defender offices, um, for example, the one here in Massachusetts, had been doing that prior to, to 2010. I know a lot of offices around the country have, have done that. But it takes resources, including time and you know expertise on that particular area. So it's it can be really difficult to get that. I've seen a couple of different models um, with public defender offices around the country. So some offices will have an individual who is specifically focused on immigration consequences, have an attorney that serves as a, an advisor to all the other PDs in the office. Um, I've seen models in which there's... Uh, private immigration attorney or attorneys who work on a contract basis with the public defender's office who can provide that advice. Um, so there's a couple of different models, um, and do I do it for folks around the country, too. Yeah. Do you ever think there's a, I mean, ever a world in which you get, like, an immigration Gideon, like a right to an attorney in immigration proceedings? or? 
boy, right to be appointed an attorney. An I guess appointed is. attorney, yeah. I mean, in my personal view, I think that would be that's critically necessary. I mean, it's it's just you're basically it's 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 a total travesty of justice that that does not occur right now because folks who are facing immigration consequences like deportation, many times that is the most important consequence an important factor for them when facing a a criminal charge especially a a minor criminal charge in which you know they're looking at you know community service or a fine or probation or something like that um you know not to not to devalue what what that means but i think it's incredibly important i don't know i don't think under this administration it's it's likely for obvious reasons but um i'd be hopeful in the future that something like a civil Gideon in the immigration context would occur. There are some very narrow exceptions in the immigration context where an appointed counsel can be appointed, specifically in cases in which somebody has a mental illness and there's a capacity issue. But beyond that, it's, it's, it really doesn't exist. And what is your sense of how many people go through the immigration system without an attorney? It's a it's a huge number. It's a huge number that go through the system without an attorney. Um, it's I mean just anecdotally I can tell you in here in Boston when I go to court, we have a very active, very good, um, large immigration bar here in the Boston area, and even with that going to court. I'm constantly seeing folks who are there without any representation at all because they can't afford it. Um, and it's it's really sad. It's really hard to watch those proceedings in which somebody is um, you know, struggling with the language, doesn't understand what the, the, the you know what the charges are that are being brought against them, especially if there's a immigration issue trying to grasp where the legal concepts there it's 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 virtually impossible for somebody to do yeah and i mean i'm sure this year has been a reminder of of the finiteness of your resources but that must be really hard as someone who you know knows that were there infinite time you would you do have actually the skills to help yeah. and yet it's just not feasible yeah, it's really, really, it's tough. It's probably the hard, one of the hardest parts of the job. I remember, I remember I was in immigration court not that long ago uh, in a detained docket, and there was a gentleman who was detained here in Boston from uh, Denmark, I believe. And he had been brought to the United States as a child. He was less than a year old, so baby. And he was in his 70s and had lived here his entire life and had been convicted of an offense like 15 years ago, a fairly minor theft offense, and was now facing deportation back to Denmark. And I can remember him asking the judge what language they spoke in Denmark and what the climate was like, and if the judge had any suggestions as to where he should try to live. I mean, it was it was just mind-boggling to sit there and have to, yeah. have to watch that. It was really, really sad. Yeah. Uh, but Obama also had a reputation for being the quote-unquote deporter-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you're right that that Obama, as it's sort of famously been said, deported more individuals than any other prior president had, had done in his, uh, his two terms in office. 
I think if Trump continues to go in this direction, um, he's certainly apprehending more individuals than Obama did. So he'll outpace Obama, which causing a bit of a lag at this point is the immigration court backlog that I mentioned before. So despite the fact that there have been increased apprehensions, the immigration courts haven't been able to catch up because of this giant backlog. Um, so, but getting back to your point about what has gotten worse, uh, there are a number of things. Obviously, I sort of mentioned the, the Muslim ban. I think that is one of the more egregious pieces of presidential policy I've ever seen or even heard of. Um, and, you know, the fact that it was implemented, um, or I should say attempted to be implemented within a week of when he was inaugurated, kind of set the tone for his, what his immigration policy was, was basically going to be, going to be like, and it was targeting folks based on race, religion, um, and, and those kinds of factors. The, the increased apprehensions, the apprehensions in the courthouses, and then not only the courthouses, but hospitals, places of worship, that has gotten much worse and has created this incredible amount of fear in the immigrant community, um, which is awful. And uh, the increased use of detention and the president's, in particular, I think, uh, the president's emphasis on using more private prisons. Um, is something that I think is going to continue to be uh, is going to continue to have significant ramifications down the road because those industries are incredibly powerful, um, and while the president has the authority obviously to enforce immigration laws, he doesn't have the authority to create immigration laws. But these private prison industries, which are very powerful and influential, can influence legislation, which would have a lasting effect. Is there also I have, you know I also heard Obama sort of characterize it as a difference in character of the the types of um folks that he was targeting right like the whole right. felons not, not families. families right um do you think that's true or was that just sort of a nice turn of phrase it was the obama administration definitely focused more on folks with criminal records um and we could have a whole separate conversation about whether that's a good thing or not because i think it sort of creates this this terrible sort of dichotomy of like the good immigrant versus bad immigrant, which which I think is is really dangerous to do. The Trump administration, as you said, has basically eviscerated those prosecutorial uh, guidelines for immigration enforcement officers, such that um, they have sort of free reign to go after anyone, regardless of whether there's any criminal history in, in that person's past, um, and that has. You know that's created an incredible amount of fear, which I think is part of their strategy, right? So, part of the reason that we've responded in a way that we've increased our community outreach is to try to combat that fear in a lot of ways. You know, through presentations and making sure folks know about their their rights and whatnot. It's interesting because I guess you could argue that there's a deterrent purpose to that fear, but I'm not sure how much that like fear trickles outside outside of the country it seems like mm -hmm. it doesn't scaring a group of people who live in the united states already it's not like they're gonna leave so it, yeah. it, it it actually seems like it's just um it's not serving much of a purpose and it's yeah. um and just it, sort of 
abusing a specific population in the country. Right, exactly, and it, and it drives folks underground, yeah. which is not something that's helpful for anybody, including U.S. citizens that are here. You know, so when you've got a community who's too afraid to interact with the police because they're afraid that immigration enforcement is going to be involved, then they're less likely to report uh, a crime, they're less likely to um, um, cooperate in an investigation or serve as a, as a witness, um, and they become targets for you know, criminal uh, offenses. So that's, I mean, that's one example. And obviously you want people who are sick to go to the hospital, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, both as a, as, a, as a human being and also as a person who, yeah, as a taxpayer. for whom, Right. Like, like, you don't want someone to wait until it's extremely acute and then walk through the emergency room and need, you know, the most expensive care that someone needs. But also as a human being, obviously. It's exactly. important that people get Exactly, exactly. There's, an, there's a whole economic argument that um, is, folks have been have been betting out is very um, significant in that if you were able to bring into you know the eleven or twelve million undocumented folks who are here if you're able to bring them into the into the fold in terms of of um, you know having them uh, pay income taxes and you know many of them do already but if you had their statuses regularized such that they were part of the system, just like a U.S. citizen is part of the system, like myself, um, it would greatly benefit the economy. You know, the federal economy, local economies, um, but all of that is lost on this administration. You know, it's all about targeting folks who um, are not U.S. citizens, you know, who, who live in, in minority communities and in poor communities. Um, you mentioned doing some community work and um, know your rights trainings, and obviously this has to be extremely abbreviated because I'm sure those trainings are much more comprehensive yeah. than this. But just sort of high level, what are the main rights that you want people to be walking around understanding they have? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a big one is you have, you have the right to remain silent. You always have the right to remain silent. You don't have to answer any questions. Um if immigration for, customs enforcement is trying to uh, get into your house or your car or somewhere you have a, a higher level of privacy expectations, um, they need to have a warrant, and it's got to be a, a judicial warrant issued by a judge and not one of these immigration warrants or administrative warrants that's issued by a local immigration officer. And what are the immigration warrants for? So the immigration warrants basically just uh, direct an immigration officer to apprehend an individual okay. that Immigration and Customs Enforcement thinks that is removable from the U.S. Okay. But there's no, you know, Fourth Amendment protection. There's no probable cause behind it, um, that sort of thing. Right. So unless they see, you know, Joe Smith, whose name is on the warrant, walking down the street, they can apprehend him, but they right. can't, you know, enter someone else's home looking for him. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then... In terms of a, you may not get it this year, but if you had a sort of wish list of immigration reform items, mm. um, what would be top of the list? Oof. Wow. Um, boy, that's a tough one. I mean, we talked about sort of the Gideon model, I think would be, would be very important um, Gideon, sorry, just for p- purposes of the podcast, being the right to have an uh, an attorney appointed. Appointed counsel, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
there there is just so much that's wrong and antiquated and uh, just generally a mess when it comes to our immigration laws that are completely unjust and unworkable at this point. Um, so I, I guess if I had a single um, wish, it would be for some kind of legislation that would allow the folks who are here in the United States without status a pathway to citizenship. Um, I think that would be absolutely monumental. Um, and it can be done, and Congress has done similar things before. But a pathway to citizenship uh, should not be a bartering chip that the administration uses in order to, to get an $18 billion wall on the southwest border um, or 10,000 more Border Patrol troops or ICE officers. So I know that's, that's, that's total, you know, sort of pie in the sky. If I could, you know, snap my fingers and have anything, that, that might be top of the list. There'd be a lot of others too, but <laughs> if I had to choose one. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave it with pie in the sky. Thank you so much. This has been thank a great you. conversation. Yep. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, I want to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program and those at Pottington Bear who composed our theme music. 